0: Good morning, you're New Orleans News and Views.
1: This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. We are breaking with convention. I'm Amy Goodman, with Juan González, as we bring you part two of our conversation with Gene Guerrero, the award-winning investigative journalist and author of the new book, Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Agenda. Um, If you can talk, Gene Guerrero, more about how central Stephen Miller is to the entire Trump agenda. Um, Not that Donald Trump didn't have these ideas before, but formulating them, turning them into policy, really weaponizing them. Um, President Trump taking on Stephen Miller—this is really significant now, because Kellyanne Conway uh, was one of the three of the longest surviving uh, advisors. You have Stephen Miller, Kellyanne Conway and Jared Kushner. Now Kellyanne Conway has stepped back, because she is having family problems, so that gives Stephen Miller even more power. He clearly is not very successful when he's on TV, so they pulled him back from being a kind of spokesperson. But that's not really where he started. Uh, when he—when President Trump was running for president, um, it was Stephen Miller, who was the warm act, uh, warm-up act, coming from Jeff Sessions, where he led his anti-immigrant agenda. Give us the history, even back to where he grew up in Santa Monica, Gene.
0: Yeah, I mean, officially, Stephen Miller is now the longest-lasting advisor in the White House outside of the president's own family. And he, he is someone who—he grew up in Southern California, in Santa Monica, California. Uh, you know, some people are surprised to learn that the architect of Trump's anti-immigration agenda comes from California, which is such a deep blue state these days. But, you know, one of the reasons I was interested in telling Stephen Miller's story is, is because I i grew up in Southern California during the same time period. And I remember, you know, there was this intense anti-immigrant hostility at the time. There was, you know, statewide bipartisan attacks on bilingual education, on affirmative action, on social services for children of undocumented migrants. You had the governor of the time, Pete Wilson, blaming all of the state's fiscal and crime problems on what he called the migrant invasion. Uh, So, a lot of the rhetoric that we're seeing coming out of the Trump administration was very Common in the California of Stephen Miller's youth, and I, I truly see Stephen Miller as as being a product of that environment. And you know, he 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 from a very young age was expressing these racist viewpoints, internalizing the rhetoric of the state, going around his very diverse high school, you know, telling his Mexican classmates to. To go back to their countries if they can 't learn the American way, telling them to speak English, going to school board meetings to argue against measures to improve racial equity, you know not the kind of stuff that you normally see out out of a, out of a young teenager while you 're talking about Stephen Miller in high
1: school, Jean, I wanted to go back to a clip of him in two thousand and two at a high school pep rally in Santa Monica, California. Univision obtained a video made by four of his high school classmates for an Audiovisual production class at the time. I'm Stephen
2: Miller. Some of you may or may not know who I am. We don't have time to get into that right now. I'm the only candidate up here who really
3: stands out. I will say and I will do things that no one else in their right mind would say or do. Am I the only one who is sick?
0: You know Stephen Miller at this time had had met these extremists like like a former Marxist named David Horowitz who had introduced him to this idea that that this false idea that everything that we hold dear as Americans is is a result of white men that you know white men created liberty white men created equality and that you know we need to uh, you know preserve preserve th- that those things by you know maintaining a white majority although David Horowitz always says he's not a racist and that for him it's not about race when you look at his writings, they're very much steeped in, in race. And one critical thing about Horowitz is that when Stephen Miller, you know, he goes to college, he, he, he graduates, he's kind of seen as a pariah. You know, people people are offended by the things that he, he says out loud, but they kind of just roll their eyes. They think he's just too out there to ever, you know, do any, anything to really harm people. But David Horowitz gets him a job in Congress with Tea Party Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, and eventually with Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions. And this is where, you know, he meets Donald Trump, he he goes on to shape his campaign. Meanwhile, Horowitz is feeding him, uh, you know, talking points and policy goals, including a strategy paper that talks about how the Republican Party needs to remake itself around demonization and specifically inciting base emotions, fear instead of hope. And, and other hostile emotions. And you see Stephen Miller just running with this and, and you know inserting very graphic, gory descriptions of alleged migrant crimes into Trump's speeches, re- creating an immigration policy that is aimed at re-engineering the ethnic flows into this country to keep brown and black people out.
3: And in terms of uh, Miller's influence, even before uh, he hooked up with Trump during his period with Sessions, he was uh, instrumental, wasn't he, in preventing comprehensive immigration reform from being enacted back in 2013 or so, when it looked like there was a compromise uh, being developed between Republicans and, and Democrats in in the Senate around immigration reform?
0: Exactly. This is critical. I mean, Stephen Miller came to power during a time when the Republican Party was really moving towards becoming a more diverse and more inclusive party. You know, they'd had their autopsy report in 2012, where they talked about how they needed to reach out to minority communities that they don't normally reach out to. And Stephen Miller, meanwhile, was meeting with Jeff Sessions, was meeting with Steve Bannon, who eventually became the chief strategist for a while for Trump, and, and you know, looking at analysis uh, analyses about the, quote, missing white voter, and deciding that they were that there was this missing white voter in the 2012 election, that they were really going Going to double down and triple down on targeting through the use of fear, through the use of demonization, as I talked about earlier. But you know, and 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 this is when you see, you know, there's this by bi- this historic bipartisan immigration compromise between Republicans and Democrats that you know further militarizes the border, provides a legal pathway for people who are already here legally, a true you know compromise. And and Stephen Miller goes to work with right wing media outlets to completely smear this b- this bill as something that was going to quote. Decimate America through the limitless importation of cheap labor. Again, this apocalyptic language that is very common to Stephen Miller, and it ended up derailing the bill very successfully. And, and this is also when Stephen Miller was, you know, working with Breitbart to pump, you know, white nationalist and white supremacist literature onto its writers to, to, to mainstream these ideas, uh, you know, laundering them through this other through these other narratives about national identity, about heritage, about you know, national security and economics.
3: Uh, you also talk in your book about how right-wing radio uh, helped shape the uh, the ideas of Stephen Miller. Or uh, could you talk about that as well?
0: Yeah. So Stephen Miller, when he was a teenager in high school, he calls into this local talk show host called the Larry Elder Show, and you know starts to complain about the multiculturalism at his school. Starts to complain about the alleged lack of patriotism at his school, and Larry Elder, who who is a black man who, you know, at the time was saying that there is no such thing as systemic racism against black and brown people, that the problems of the black communities are due to, you know, problems of self-determination in the black communities, you know, these very racist ideas that allowed People, white listeners to perceive themselves as not racist because of the fact that the host was a black man. This this man, you know, Larry Elder, ended up being very impressed with Stephen Miller, you know, how articulate he was, how passionate he was at, at a young age, and deciding to give him a platform throughout his, you know, multiple times. He he came on 69 times, according to L- Larry Elder. And this is when, at a very young age, Stephen Miller's voice was being listened to by by other key figures in the Trump administration, who were in Los Angeles at the time—you know, Steve Bannon, Andrew Breitbart, the founder of Breitbart, Alex Marlowe, you know, all, all these people were listening to Stephen Miller and 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 impressed by him. And when they met him again later, it, you know, rung a bell.
1: Uh, you mentioned Breitbart. And I wanted to go to what happened last year with reporter Katie McHugh, who gave her private emails with Stephen Miller to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Can you talk about what was
0: contained in those emails and what happened? Yes. So, those are the emails that reveals that that Stephen Miller has this affinity for white nationalist and white supremacist literature. I mean, he was sending over links to websites like American Renaissance, which is a white supremacist website that pumps out false crime statistics about black and brown people to paint them as more violent than white people, you know, sending over these kinds of websites and stories and urging Breitbart writers to to write articles about them. One of the most telling ones was Stephen Miller urging them to write about the parallels between real life and this book called The Camp of the Saints, which is a very racist white supremacist book about the— end of the white world, after it is destroyed by this horde of refugees who are described in very animalistic and beastial—you know, talked about as beasts and monsters, language that is supposed to get you to feel a sense of fear and hatred and, and disgust towards towards people of color. And, and the book explicitly endorses violence and hatred towards people of color, as well as towards their anti-racist allies, which it, it characterizes as agitators and anarchists and mobs, the exact same language that you see Stephen Miller inserting into the speeches of Donald Trump, especially now, during 2020, when he is trying to distract from, you know, the crises on his hands, such as his disastrous response to the coronavirus crisis. But, yeah, these emails really, you know, showed Stephen Miller's affinity for, for white nationalism. And you saw calls for his resignation, uh, you, know, through, through, you know, throughout the country. And, but Donald Trump, you know, doubled down on, on this advisor who he's very close with, perceives as, as a son, and, and, you know, even attended his wedding in February when, as the coronavirus was spreading.
1: And you have The Hill reporting that something like 25 um, Jewish House members—now, Stephen Miller is Jewish, though he's been fiercely condemned, for example, by his uncle David Glosser, his mother's brother, um, for his anti-immigrant views, and said, our family wouldn't even be here if they didn't accept immigrants in this country. Um, But you have 25 Jewish House members calling on Trump to fire Stephen Miller uh, over those leaked emails because of how—well anti-Semitic they are, as well as hate-filled and racist, Jane. Exactly. Um, exactly. I mean, he, 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 he's
0: not—he's not, he's, he's, he's doubling down on having him there, because he, he trusts him so much. But, I, but you're right. I mean, in the book, I delve into, you know, his family members. His, his maternal grandmother, Ruth, spent her entire retirement compiling the family history for her grandchildren. She writes that she, she sees herself as a bridge between the ancestors who came here fleeing persecution, fleeing nationalist agitators, and grandchildren like Stephen Miller, and, and, you know, trying to record for them the stories and, and the dangers of demonization, so that her grandchildren will never forget the value of people who come to this country with nothing but the clothes on their back and speaking no English, as Stephen Miller's great-grandparents came to this country. But this is a lesson that you know Stephen Miller directly assaulted throughout his life, completely ignored. And this you know has had broad national security consequences outside of the immigration issue. People often think that Stephen Miller's story is, is all about immigration. But one of the most surprising things when I was researching this book is, you know, Stephen Miller is a public relations flack who was put in charge of policies for this country at the age of 31. With no policy experience and, you know, repeatedly disregarded the input of national security experts, bypassed the bureaucracy, you know, to ram his white nationalist agenda through. And this has, you know, left Americans more vulnerable to a range of real threats, such as the pandemic that we're seeing today, according to White House officials that I interviewed for the book.
3: Uh, I wanted to ask you in terms of it's the unfinished agenda for uh, Stephen Miller, because— Uh, many people were surprised not only at the vehemence of the Trump—the first four years of the Trump administration's attacks on the undocumented, but also on legal immigration and the restricting of even legal uh, immigration, refugees, and so forth. If Trump is uh, reelected in November, what would you envision as what a Miller would push him to do?
0: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the disproportionate impact so far has been on people who have broken no laws, with the exception being, in some cases, the misdemeanor of illegal entry. But mostly you know, slashing refugee admissions to record lows and completely obliterating the asylum system at the U.S.-Mexico border. And in a second term, Stephen Miller, you know, has pretty much adopted most of the policies that were recommended by these eugenics-funded groups that advocate for population control for non-white people. One of the things he has not been able to get through, which I think we would absolutely see in a second term, is, you know, ending birthright citizenship, this idea that If you are born here, you you have a right to become a citizen. It is in our Constitution. It is in our 14th Amendment, and and Stephen Miller has been— you know, wanting to attack that for, from day one. And, and you know, he's brought it up. He's brought it up to Trump. Trump has brought it up. But this is not something that they've really focused on, because it would be so difficult to do and probably impossible and faced with intense opposition. But I absolutely believe that if we see a second term, that this is going to be one of their priorities, to eliminate, you know, this constitutional right of people to become citizens if, if they are born in this country.
1: Which particularly goes to the issue of, uh, again, developing a birther theory, um, a a birther attack um, on Kamala Harris, uh, saying uh, her parents weren't born here, the very thing that they did, of course, with President Obama. But that was Trump, without the help of Stephen Miller, um, because— President Obama's father was born in Kenya. Um, I wanted to turn, though, to Stephen Miller speaking to Tucker Carlson last month about the demonstrations in Portland, Oregon, against police brutality and racism, as well as the deployment of federal forces there. Miller said the police are responsible for dealing with violent crime, but federal agents um, could also be called upon.
3: That responsibility still falls mostly on the shoulders of police departments in our local communities. But this government is still going to step up and use DEA, FBI, ATF and DHS to try to keep our citizens safe. Good luck. A lot of people rooting for you in that, for sure. This, is, this is about the survival of this country, and we will not back down.
1: This is about the survival of this country, says Stephen Miller, and we will not back down, he says. Gene Guerrero, can you respond? And also the weaponization of the DHS that is really
0: the—well, um, <clears throat> that's Stephen Miller. Yeah, I mean, it, it speaks to two things for me. I mean, one of them is just this— You know, the fact that he is a case study in radicalization, a case study in indoctrination, a person who, at a vulnerable age, when they were going through a hard time, when his father had lost a lot of money, you know, was radicalized in these very extremist ideas that, you know, there's some kind of existential threat facing the country in the form of, you know, brown and black people and the Democratic Party partnering up with them, which is, you know, a very white supremacist idea that Steve Miller ran with throughout his life. The other thing is, like Stephen Miller, as I show in the book, he's he's very obsessed with with mobsters and mobster movies. You know, throughout his life, he would dress up as Robert De Niro's mobster character in the movie Casino and, and go to Las Vegas for for celebrations, for birthdays, and things like that with his friends and family up until you know his third in, into his thirties and this this you know this idea that there is no law and order apart from might makes right it really defines stephen miller and really defines donald trump and 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 you know speaks to how they're using federal forces using dhs to push through you know their political agenda and demonize you know, anti-racist protesters who are trying to you know, protest police brutality, you know, Black Lives Matter being painted as some kind of threat to civilization. And this is, you know, this is just it, go, it speaks to the way that Stephen Miller was radicalized at a very young age. You know, just a couple of days after that interview with Tucker Carlson, he started t- Stephen Miller t- talk to the Washington Examiner about how this is about a war on cancel culture. They are prioritizing, you know, battling cancel culture as one of the gravest threats facing American civilization, essentially lumping together any critics of white male supremacy under this banner of cancel culture in order to cancel them and, you know, silence their voices, using federal forces in addition to, you know, the White House platform.
3: Could you talk somewhat about the uh, relationship between Stephen Miller and the white nationalist Richard Spencer uh, at Duke, uh, how it began?
0: Yes. So that was a very critical turning point for Stephen Miller when he starts to think about the immigration system and how to use the immigration system to filter out brown and black people. He, he met Richard Spencer at Duke University. They, they, they were friends, according to Richard Spencer. They worked together to organize an event that po- brought the white nationalist Peter Brimlow onto campus to, to speak about his book called The Alien Nation, which talks about the need to pause immigration completely because of the racial character of the people who are coming to this country, mostly people from what he calls the Third World, which, again, you know, he, he, he talks about as some kind of apocalyptic threat to civilization. Well, Peter,
3: Peter Brimlow, who himself was an immigrant, right? I think he was from—Great Britain wasn't he?
0: Yes, exactly. He, he's a, he came from Great Britain and is also an immigrant, but, you know, believes that the, the whiteness of America needs to be preserved. And this is how Stephen Miller You know, he had been exposed to white supremacist ideas laundered through the language of heritage and national security previously, you know, through his mentors like David Horowitz. But this is when he starts to, you know, read about them in a much more explicit fashion, be introduced to, 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 you know, white nationalist websites like Dare, which is run by Peter Brimlow. And, and you know, and this is a real turning point in Stephen Miller's thinking. And, you know, he, Stephen Miller says that he wasn't friends with Richard Spencer, but, you know, it's, it's documented that he, they worked together on bringing Peter Brimlow to, to campus.
1: And I wanted to talk—follow um, up on what Juan just asked you about Richard Spencer. Um, go to Charlottesville and what happened there, um, and now— Spencer endorsing Joe Biden—first, I thought it was some kind of dirty trick, um, where he said, I plan to vote for Biden and a straight Democratic ticket. He tweeted this on Sunday. It's not based on accelerationism or anything like that. The liberals are clearly more competent people. Um, He said, MAGA and the GOP are collectivists now, in the sense that the party messages to normal white people with heavy Southern evangelical inflection. I simply recognize how ineffective, useless and traitorous the GOP is. And he goes on to tweet, you know, it'll allow us to lay low for now. and something like, you know, rise up later.
0: Exactly. I haven't heard back from Richard Spencer. I've tried to—I mean, I interviewed him for the book, but I tried to reach out to him to ask him about this latest endorsement of Biden. So I can't speak to how he would explain it to me. But what I can say is that, you know, uh, um, Richard Spencer, you know, he's been a little bit, uh, um, you know— Hurt by the fact that he's been cast aside by people like, like Stephen Miller, who, who, who says that he was never friends with him, who completely renounces his ideas, pretends that they're, pretends that they're you know completely different ideologies, and I, I think that you know in, I think it's more of a PR stunt than anything else you know Richard Spencer just trying to remake his reputation and, and start start to try to come back into the limelight and, and this is the most provocative way to do it.
1: Um, and, Jean Guerrero, if you can uh, talk about what surprised you most in your research, uh, did Stephen Miller respond to you? Has he responded to the book, Hatemonger?
0: No. So, I tried to reach out to Stephen Miller—I reached out to Stephen Miller from the moment that I got the book contract, reached out to the White House, told them I wanted to, them to be a part of the process of the reporting. and. You know, offer them an opportunity to, to speak, but you know, ultimately they decided not to not to participate. Um, as far as the thing that most surprised me about about you know my reporting, it, it was probably you know I came at this as an immigration reporter, as someone who had been covering the the human cost, the consequences of Stephen Miller's policies from you know the busiest border crossing in the United States. And 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 I I was looking at it as, as as an immigration reporter, as someone trying to understand Stephen Miller's impact on the immigration system and on immigrant and asylum seekers and and, and refugees refugees' lives. And what surprised me was to realize and discover through my reporting how much bigger this was than the immigration system. It, Stephen Miller has had an impact on your life, regardless of whether you care about immigration or not, because of the demonization that he has brought to Trump's rhetoric, because of the radicalization of the Republican Party that he has contributed to, and you know how he has weaponized the Department of Homeland Security. So he he he's, he demonizes not only immigrants but also the Democratic Party, you know, Black Lives Matter, and and and, and is really behind this demonization. And and this, po- if you want to understand the era of polarization that we are living today, you have to understand Stephen Miller. And not only that, but you know, the era of, of crises that we are living because of the fact that Stephen Miller was given so much power in the White House, despite his lack of experience and his complete disregard for, you know, the input of experts, that instead—you know, the coronavirus response, instead of being focused on masks and medical equipment, it was focused on, you know, suspending green card access, targeting international students, shutting down the border to asylum seekers, you know, ramming through all of the things that Stephen Miller wanted to do that he hadn't gotten to do yet. And this, you know, this has consequences for, for everybody, not just immigrants.
1: Well, Jean Garetto, I want to thank you so much for being with us, award-winning investigative journalist, author of the new book, Hate Monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Agenda. To see part one of our discussion, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman, with Juan González. We are breaking with convention. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Mom, mom, boy,
2: There's there's a coffee. Like
4: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, one of many disfiguring effects of corporate news media is the ingrained presumption that the United States, whatever its leadership, has the right, nay, the duty, to intervene with violence, with corruption, it doesn't matter in other sovereign countries to suit its own interests, by which is meant the interests of the powerful and not the vast majority. If the U.S. wants it, it's good, and you should want it too. It's tautological and obscene, yet accepting it, internalizing it, dismissing or demonizing any who don't agree is the price of admission to serious political conversation in the so-called mainstream press, which is why talking around their narrative is more important every day. We'll have a differently premised conversation about U.S. foreign policy with Phyllis Bennis, author and director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. That's coming up, but first we'll take a quick look back at some recent press. After the spectacle of a democratic national convention featuring more Republicans than Latinos, Americans got a Republican convention featuring, to pick just one thing, gleeful violations of the Hatch Act. That's the law that prohibits federal employees from taking part in partisan political activities. So things like having the Secretary of State make a campaign speech from Jerusalem, where he's engaged on state business, or the first lady stumping with the White House Rose Garden as her backdrop, or the head of Homeland Security performing a naturalization ceremony with Trump looking on as part of the convention. All of that is patently unethical. But besides framing it as many Democrats are outraged, as did USA Today, elite media normalized this behavior with passivity, Like the New York Times headline pointed out by Eric Bolert in his newsletter press run, quote, at RNC, Trump uses tools of presidency in aim to broaden appeal, close quote. The same press corps for whom this is just... Oh, there he goes, breaking with precedent again, had a very different response, Bollert reminds, when Al Gore was accused of violating the Hatch Act for making campaign fundraising calls from his White House office as vice president. At that time, the New York Times editorial page called for an independent counsel to launch a major investigation. The House spent $7 million investigating, and the Senate held three months of hearings. But Trump, he's just using the tools of presidency. It evokes another recent New York Times headline when Trump was threatening to ban the app TikTok explicitly because of its Chinese ownership. Or else, he said, it could get taken over by Microsoft, in which case the U.S. Treasury should get a cut since it was his threat that made the sale possible. The BBC, with restraint, called that, quote, almost mafia-like behavior, close quote. But as Dan Frumkin at PressWatchers.org spotlighted, the New York Times described it in a headline as Trump's, quote, impulse to act as CEO to corporate America, close quote. His interventions in company dealings based on his own instincts being, you guessed it, a departure from the approach of predecessors. Elite journalists are no doubt clearing their shelves for the awards they expect to win for the fearless and high-minded excoriations of the Trump presidency they will write when it's over. Too bad they can't muster up that courage while it matters. And as a historic set of wildfires sweeps across California, sparked by lightning and stoked by record heat and drought resulting from climate disruption, many outlets are talking about an additional problem California faces, shortages of the prison labor that it normally relies on for firefighting crews. As Neil DeMoss wrote for FAIR.org, Outlets like Insider are noting that, quote, the coronavirus pandemic is creating a shortage of inmate fire crews to battle the wildfires, close quote, and that California has relied on incarcerated firefighters as its primary hand crews since the 1940s. The New York Times declared that losing inmate labor, quote, has been the difference between having the manpower to save homes from wildfires or not, close quote, and that quote, hiring firefighters to replace them, especially given the difficult work involved, would challenge a state already strapped for cash. Close quote. All of this reporting danced around a key problem with framing this as a labor shortage. There are plenty of workers available in a state with 2.5 million people currently unemployed, no doubt including many of the fire-trained inmate workers who were released early by Gavin Newsom in order to free them from the threat of getting sick in California's COVID-ravaged prisons. The difference? Unlike prison laborers, regular citizens have to be paid more than a pittance. In California, inmates at state prisons are allowed to work at conservation camps for a base rate of $5.12 a day, plus an additional dollar an hour when they're out fighting fires. As the Sacramento Bee reported, most are assigned to hand crews that typically perform the critically important and dangerous job of using chainsaws and hand tools to cut fire lines around properties and neighborhoods during wildfires. The Pacific Standard recounted the practice's origins in the 13th Amendment that ended slavery with the loophole that involuntary servitude could continue as, quote, punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, close quote. Convict leasing was formally outlawed in 1941, but as DeMoss reminds, the principle of using inmate labor to save money continues to this day saving states money while exploiting the incarcerated, who often can't even get the jobs they've done while in prison once they get out, and driving down wages for the non-incarcerated as well. California inmates fighting wildfires is a compelling story. But to tell it thoroughly, you'd have to see it through the eyes of incarcerated people, and not just those of a government whose main concern is the inconvenience of having to pay people when they're used to getting their work for almost free. And finally, Facebook shouldn't run Trump's lie-laden ads. That's the Washington Post editorial board being pretty unequivocal last October, urging Facebook to reject ads that contain flat-out falsehoods. Bill Gruskin wrote it up for a Columbia Journalism review. Five days later... The Post weighed in again in an editorial headlined, Free speech doesn't mean Facebook must run dishonest ads. And then less than two weeks after that, they were back at it, telling readers that since Facebook's powerful targeting engine enables the company to profit from what the Post called, quote, the world's most precise and powerful disinformation apparatus, close quote, The editorial insisted that Mark Zuckerberg's company step up to the plate and call lies out when it sees them. So it couldn't be clearer. The Washington Post is opposed to media companies profiting from misleading political ads. Except that last Thursday, as the Democratic National Convention was coming to a close, readers of the Post's website were deluged with Trump campaign ads that took over the homepage on desktop and mobile devices. The radical leftist takeover of Joe Biden is complete, the ads declared against a backdrop of a city aflame. Gruskin's piece shows that there's not just a problem, but a what's-the-problem problem. And media outlets' interest in democracy dying in darkness might be determined by whether or not they get a check for turning on the light. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Describing the Democratic presidential candidates after a debate back in January, our next guest noted that they had talked some about what it means to be the commander-in-chief, but not enough about what it means to be the diplomat-in-chief. The same might be said for corporate news media, whose assessment of presidential contenders gives foreign policy short shrift generally, and then, as we noticed in the debates, overwhelmingly frame international questions around military intervention. What's missing from that truncated conversation and what does it cost us in terms of global political possibilities? Phyllis Bennis directs the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and is author of numerous books, including Before and After, U.S. Foreign Policy and the War on Terror and Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict, now in its seventh updated edition. She joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Phyllis Bennis. Great to be with you. Well, I want to talk about what a humanistic foreign policy could look like. But first, as I have you here, I'd feel remiss not to ask for your reflections on current events in Gaza and Israel-Palestine. U.S. media aren't paying a lot of attention to two weeks now of attacks by Israel on the Gaza Strip, and the articles we see are quite formulaic. Israel is retaliating, you know. So, what's the context to help us understand these events?
5: Yeah, the situation, Janine, in in Gaza is as bad as ever and rapidly getting worse, not least because they have now found the first, I think it's up to seven, community spread cases of the COVID virus, Mm -hmm. which up until now, all the cases in Gaza, and they had been very few because Gaza has been under essentially a lockdown since 2007 but the cases that came in were all from people coming in from outside who had been outside and were coming back. Now the first community spread has happened, and it means that the already devastated health care system in Gaza is going to be completely overwhelmed and unable to deal with the crisis. That problem facing the healthcare care system, of course, has been exacerbated in recent days with the Israeli bombing that has continued, and it included cutting off fuel to Gaza's sole functioning power plant. That means that the hospitals and everything else in Gaza are limited to four hours a day of electricity at the most. Some areas have less than that. Some have no electricity at all now at the heart of the hottest time of, of the Gaza summer, so that people facing any kind of lung diseases are devastated in terms of their living conditions, and the hospitals can do very little about it. And as more COVID cases happen, that's going to get worse. The Israeli bombing has been going on since this range of bombing. Of course, we know that Israeli bombing of Gaza is something that's gone back and forth for many years. Israel uses the term mowing the lawn Mm. to describe its repeating, going back to Gaza to bomb again, to remind the population that they are still living under Israeli occupation. This current round, which has been almost every day since August 6, just about two weeks now, a little more than two weeks, was partly because the siege of Gaza that Israel had imposed back in 2007 has recently been escalating, so that the fisher folk were now prohibited from going out to fish at all, which is a huge component of the very, very limited, fragile economy of Gaza. It's the immediate way people can feed their families, and suddenly they're not allowed to go out in their boats. They can't go fishing at all. They have nothing to feed their families. The new restrictions on what goes in has now become everything is prohibited other than certain food items and certain medical items, which are rarely available anyway. Nothing else is allowed in, so the conditions in gaza are getting really dire really desperate and some young gazans sent balloons lighted balloons with their like little uh, candles sort of in the balloons that have had the effect of causing fires in a few places on the israeli side of the fence that israel has used to fence in the entire gaza strip making the two million people who live in gaza essentially prisoners in an open-air prison It's one of the most densely populated pieces of land on the earth, and this is what they're facing. And in response to these aerial balloons, the Israeli Air Force has been back on a daily basis bombing both what they claim are military targets, such as tunnels, which are used on occasion. They have been used in the past. There's no indication of recent use for military purposes by Hamas and other organizations, but are primarily used for smuggling in things like food and medicine, which can't get through the Israeli checkpoints. So in that context, the Israeli escalation is a very, very dangerous one at a moment when people in Gaza who are 80% refugees, and of those 80%, 80% are completely dependent on outside aid agencies, the UN and others, for even basic food for survival. This is a population that is so incredibly vulnerable. And that's who the Israeli military is going after. It's a horrific situation and getting worse.
4: It seems important to keep that in mind as we read news accounts that say that these are attacks on Hamas, you know, which make it sound...
5: The reality is Hamas runs the government such as it is in Gaza, the government that has very little power, very little capacity to do very much to aid people's lives. But Hamas people are the people of Gaza. They live in the same refugee camps with their families as everyone else. So this notion that the Israelis say that we're going after Hamas claims that it's somehow a, a separate army, I suppose, right. you know, that doesn't exist in the midst of where people live. And of course, the U.S. and Israelis and others claim that as evidence that Hamas people don't care about their own population because they situate themselves in the middle of, of a civilian population, as if Gaza had space and choices about where, where to situate a, a, an office or whatever. It's, it, it just doesn't pay any attention to the realities on the ground and how dire conditions are in this incredibly crowded, incredibly impoverished, disempowered community of two million people that have no voice outside their own walled-off strip of land.
4: Well, Israel, Palestine, and the Middle East, more generally, will be just one of the foreign policy issues facing the next U.S. president, although what issues they need to face is part of the question. Many would have the U.S. stop seeing issues for itself uh, in other countries around the world. But rather than talk about Candidates' various positions. I wanted to ask you to share a vision, to talk about what a foreign or international engagement that honored human rights, that honored human beings, could look like. What, to you, are some of the key elements of such a policy?
5: What a concept! Hmm. A foreign policy that is based on human rights. It's something that we haven't seen here for a very, very long time. We don't see it from too many other countries either, we should be clear, but we live in this country, so it's. particularly important for us, I would say there's about five components to what that kind of a uh, foreign policy, what the core principles of such a policy could look like. Number one, reject the notion that U.S. military and economic domination around the world is the raison d'etre of having a foreign policy. Instead, understand that foreign policy has to be grounded in global cooperation, human rights, as you said, Janine respect for international law, privileging diplomacy over war, and real diplomacy, meaning a strategy that says diplomatic engagement is what we do instead of going to war, not to provide political cover to go to war, as the U.S. has so often relied on diplomacy. And that means a number of changes, very explicit ones. It means recognizing that there is no military solution to terrorism, and therefore we have to end the so-called global war on terror recognize that the militarization of foreign policy in places like Africa, where the Africa Command pretty much controls all of U.S. foreign policy towards Africa, that has to be reversed. Those things together, rejecting military and economic domination, that's number one. Number two means recognizing how what the U.S. has created in a war economy has so distorted our society at home. Mm. And that means commit to changing that by cutting the military budget massively the military budget today is about 737 billion dollars it's an unfathomable number and we need that money certainly at home we need it for dealing with the pandemic we need it for for health care and education and a green new deal and internationally we need it for a diplomatic surge we need it for humanitarian and reconstruction aid and assistance To people who have already been devastated by U.S. wars and sanctions. We need it for refugees. We need it for Medicare for all. And we need it to change what the Pentagon does so it stops killing people. You know, we could start with the 10% cut that Bernie Sanders introduced in Congress. We would support that. We would support the call from the People Over Pentagon campaign that says we should cut $200 billion. We would support that. And we would support what my institute, the Institute for Policy Studies, and the Poor People's Campaign, call for, which is to cut $350 billion, cut half the military budget, we'd still be safer. So all of that is number two. Number three, foreign policy has to acknowledge that U.S. actions in the past, military actions, economic actions, climate actions, are very much at the center of what is the driving force displacing people all around the globe. And we have a moral as well as a legal obligation under international law to therefore take the lead in providing humanitarian support and providing refuge for all those displaced people. So it means that immigration and refugee rights have to be central to a human rights-based foreign policy. Number four, recognize that the power of U.S. empire to dominate international relations all around the world has led to the privileging of war over diplomacy, again, all around the world on a global scale. It has created a vast and invasive network of more than 800 military bases around the world that are destroying the environment and communities all around the world, and it's militarized foreign policy, and all of that needs to be reversed. Power should not be the basis for our international relations. And last, and maybe the most important and the hardest, foreign policy of this country has to reject U.S. exceptionalism. We have to get over the notion that we are somehow better than everybody else, and therefore we are entitled to whatever we want in the world, to destroy whatever we want in the world, to take whatever we think we need in the world. It means that international military and economic efforts in general that have been historically aimed at controlling resources, at imposing U.S. domination and control, that that has to end. And instead, we need an alternative. We need a new kind of internationalism that's designed to prevent and to solve crises that rise from, well, certainly right now, from the current and potential wars until we manage to change the foreign policy. We need to promote real nuclear disarmament for everybody on all sides of the political divides. We have to come up with climate solutions, which is a global problem. We have to deal with poverty as a global problem. We have to deal with protecting refugees as a global problem. All of these are serious global problems that require a whole different kind of global interaction than we've ever had. And that means rejecting the notion that we are exceptional and better and different and the shining city on the hill. We are not shining. We're not up the hill. And we are creating enormous challenges for people that are living all around the world.
4: Vision is is so critical. It's not frivolous at all. It's so important to have something to look toward, you know, especially at a time when dissatisfaction with the status quo is the only place of agreement for many people. I, I only want to ask you finally about the role of movements. You said on Democracy Now! back in January after that democratic debate, these people will only move as far as we push them that if anything is only more clear just a few months later it's no less true for international affairs than for domestic talk just a bit finally about the role of people's movements
5: I think we're talking both principle and particular the principle is that social movements have always been what make possible progressive social change in this country and in most countries around the world that's not something new and different that's been true forever what's particularly true this time around and this will be true and I say this not as a partisan, but just as an analyst looking at where the various parties and various players are, if there were to be a new administration led by Joe Biden, what's been very clear to analysts looking at his role in the world is that he believes that his experience in foreign policy is his strong suit. It's not one of the areas where he's looking for cooperation and collaboration with the Bernie Sanders wing of the party with others, he thinks this is his fiefdom. This mm-hmm. is what he knows. This is where he is strong. This is where he will control. And this is probably the area where the Biden wing of the Democratic Party is the farthest away from the principles held by the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. There's been a motion to the left in the Biden wing on issues around climate, some of the issues around immigration. And those gaps are narrowing. That's not yet the case on the question of foreign policy. And for that reason, again, beyond the principle that movements are always key, in this case, it's only the movements that will force, by the power of the vote, the power in the streets, the power to bring pressure to bear on members of Congress and on the media, and changing the discourse in this country, that will force a new kind of foreign policy to be considered and ultimately to be implemented in this country. We have a lot of work to do on those kinds of changes. But when we look at what it's going to take, it's the question of social movements. There's the famous line from FDR, when he was putting together what would become the the New Deal before the Green New Deal was envisioned. There was the old not-so-green New Deal, the somewhat racist New Deal, et cetera. But it was a very important set of steps forward. And in his discussions with a number of trade union activists, progressive and socialist activists that met with the president, in all of those, what he is known to have said at the end of these meetings is, "Okay, I understand what you want me to do. Now go out there and make me do it. It was the understanding that he did not have the political capital on his own to simply write a memo and something would magically happen, that there needed to be social movements in the streets demanding what he by that time kind of agreed with, but didn't have the capacity to create by himself. It was the movements that made that possible. We're going to face situations like that in the future, and we have to do the same thing. It's social movements that will make change possible.
4: We've been speaking with Phyllis Bennis, director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies. They're online at ips-dc.org. The seventh updated edition of Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict is out now from Olive Branch Press. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Phyllis Bennis.
5: Thank you, Janine. It's been a pleasure.
4: And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, fair.org. The website is also the place to subscribe to our newsletter, Extra to sign up for our Action Alert Network or to show support for the show if you're so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noise. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.